Yes, I'm Go Chok Tong, founding patron of the IPS. Mr. Jananus Devan, director of IPS. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I am pleased to join you today to mark the 35th anniversary of the IPS. The theme of the IPS conference this year was revisitings. Since I'm approaching the end of my term, I will revisit the three shared values of multiculturalism, meritocracy, and stewardship, which I had outlined when I was sworn in as president and reflect on where we are today. First, multiracialism. Multiracialism has been Singapore's reason for existence since our independence and is an important component of our national identity. When we resolved that Singapore will be a multiracial nation, we also accepted and celebrated our differences as a source of strength and not a cause for division. We valued diversity, which meant guaranteeing that each race and creed would have a space and place as contributing members of our society. Multiracialism has served us well, and today Singapore enjoys relative harmony and cohesion. Something wrong with the mic, I think. It's okay? Yeah. There are, however, real and ever-evolving threats to multiracialism. Across the world, increasing polarization and divisions among different communities are tearing societies apart. One example is the rise of extreme right-wing nationalist movements with disturbing ideologies stemming from the belief that they are superior to others and do not need to accommodate other communities. Speaking at the recent Howard University commencement ceremony in the US, President Joe Biden described white supremacy as the greatest terrorism threat. He said that US history, and I quote, has not always been a fairy tale, unquote, and urged unity against racism. Radicalism and extremist behavior are reinforced by group psychology, where people subordinate their own discretion and thoughts to the identity of the group that they belong to, which places little restraint and conduct deemed offensive to others. Identity, identity politics is on the rise and is a real threat to society. Singapore, too, has had our own cases of extremism, and it is especially worrying when it is the youth who are involved. Given the porosity of the digital space, we must safeguard and protect our society from such dangerous and damaging influences. One incident may be all it takes to disrupt this peaceful social fabric which we have painstakingly built over the decades. Racial and religious conflicts are like the genie in the bottle. Once opened, it is difficult to put it back. We must also be cognizant of subtler threats to multiracialism, which may chip away at our cohesion and stability over time. As a small and open economy, Singapore has remained open to foreign talent as they contribute to strengths and expertise that enable us to remain economically competitive. However, living cheek by jowl on such a small island means that it is crucial for them to be able to socially integrate into our local communities. They must recognize that they are part of our society too. And in Singapore, we interact with and live among people 
who are different from ourselves. Left unaddressed, sentiments among Singaporeans that foreign talents play by different rules and stick only to their own manifesto. We often cite our origin as a migrant society to reassure ourselves that we have enough bandwidth to adjust to the challenges of sharing our small city with newcomers. That may be so, but we should not overlook the difference between the two periods of migration. In the earlier years, we were all practically in the same boat. Singapore was at a very nascent stage of its development, and everyone pitched in to grow this country from a low base to what it is today. In the process, people of different races and religions gelled together and integrated with each other, forging common hopes and dreams for the future. While each community keeps its cultural and religious practices, we are also acutely aware of the need to contribute to and forge a common national identity anchored upon values that we hold dear as a nation. I would like to believe that this is happening too among the new migrants, but there is growing concern that not, that not all consider it necessary to integrate with Singaporeans as they can manage quite well and are very comfortable in their own exclusive social circles. Singaporeans generally understand the fundamental importance of upholding the values of mutual respect, understanding and tolerance. We have made relentless efforts to strengthen multiracialism in Singapore, but we need to examine carefully whether the existing structures are effective at integrating migrants and what more can be done to improve the situation before the polarization worsens and this affection festers and affects our social harmony. Our efforts should also cover schools, workplaces and community spaces occupied by foreign talents to ensure effective engagement. Second, meritocracy. The reason that for meritocracy is clear. The economic advantage that accrues to a person should depend on capabilities and effort rather than family background. Meritocracy allows the most talented to succeed through equality of opportunities and fair competition leading to a more equitable distribution of income and wealth. Meritocracy facilitated social mobility in Singapore, enabling the growth of an expanding middle class. We now agree, however, that the very conditions that contributed to meritocracy can also result in inequality. As someone said, and I quote, Inequality among, along meritocratic lines in education fed into meritocratic inequality in the workforce, which produce incomes in the new meritocratic workers that enable them to buy even more unequal education for their children, which fed into the next cycle of the workforce, and inequality got worse and worse." Unquote. The concern is that parents who have risen through meritocracy can now entrench their position because they have the means to provide the very best for their children. We agree that there is a need to go beyond academic qualifications alone, as such a narrowly defined indicator of success only rewards those who excel in this aspect. 
For those not so academically inclined or come from poorer families with less resources, significant hurdles remain. We agree that education is still the key to social mobility, but we must ensure that it continues to benefit everyone, regardless of their parentage, and that different types of abilities are recognized. Meritocracy will continue to function as a filter to identify those who are gifted early and reward them with opportunities, which is good for Singapore, as we cannot adopt an attitude of pulling everyone down to the same denominator. Our approach must instead be to try and pull everyone up by providing them with the opportunities to do so. At the same time, we need to ensure that the path developed for those who have benefited from meritocracy does not stifle the growth of late bloomers or those who excel in non-academic areas. We must make meritocracy inclusive and one that does not inhibit social mobility. Some initiatives are already in place, such as reserving one-fifth of places in secondary schools for students not from affiliated primary schools. We also see more efforts introduced at the workplace to better recognize and reward those without academic qualifications, but are skilled workers needed by the economy. Ultimately, however, the labor market is the test. The effectiveness of these efforts, that is whether they will lead to good jobs, better pay, and careers, depends a lot on employers playing their part too. If little change, and employers still seek academic qualifications, then the inequality will continue. Social mobility is at the heart of Singapore's model of growth and nation building. It is an important element of the social compact forged with Singaporeans. It is part of the Singapore dream, where you strive for a good education, work hard, and are rewarded with a good life. We need to keep that hope alive. Third, stewardship. Stewardship means recognizing that we are accountable to one another and to our future. COVID-19 put this to the test. The pandemic disproportionately impacted disadvantaged groups, with most having limited resources to buffer against the impact of the pandemic. However, we left no one behind. Through my engagements, I met many ordinary Singaporeans who stepped up to help those in need by distributing groceries and even cooked food, including a family in Tampines who set up a table outside of their home providing daily essentials. I also visited organizations which were part of the Partners Engaging and Empowering Rough Sleepers Network and Safe Sound Sleeping Place, which provided temporary shelter spaces during the circuit breaker. Overall, I am glad to have witnessed a strong spirit of care and togetherness among Singaporeans in the face of tough challenges such as the COVID-19 pandemic. The Forward Singapore exercise launched by the government last year to revisit our social compact is also a good example of stewardship. The needs of Singaporeans will become more diverse as our population ages. Younger generations of Singaporeans have different ideas of what they envision our society should be, and one greater say 
in shaping Singapore's future. Through these forward Singapore conversations, Singaporeans have been able to share their aspirations and build consensus on our priorities moving forward. To conclude, let us commit to strengthening our shared values of multiracialism, meritocracy, and stewardship. Let me also take the opportunity to congratulate IPS on celebrating 35 years of robust research. The work of IPS in social perceptions, attitudes, and behaviors provides useful insights into the shifts in Singapore's demographic trends and emerging socio-economic challenges. IPS has also provided various platforms to discuss these policy issues, providing policymakers with richer perspectives to improve the lives of Singaporeans. I encourage IPS to continue its data-driven approach. Public policy must be grounded in good data so that we can be responsive to the challenges that Singapore will face in the coming years. I look forward to a fruitful conversation with you. Thank you. Good evening, Madam President. And good evening, ESM Go, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. It's my honor to, to have a conversation with you, Madam President. Uh, being from the media, I've uh, followed your long and distinguished career, and I should say first that I've become a fan of yours. And I can tell you exactly when I became a fan. Um, you might remember that in August 2001, Barita Haryan gave you the Achiever of the Year Award. And uh, at that event, I was impressed by your humility and your very quiet achievement. You know, I've, I've seen so many award winners, you know. So you stood up because you were so humble in accepting that award. And then in November that year, I was not surprised when, when uh, you entered politics and you then became the first uh, Malay Muslim woman MP post-independence. Two years later, if you remember, Her World gave you a further honor, Woman of the Year. And this was 2003, that's 20 years ago. So you've been at the top for a long time. <laughs> um, of course, you then, in 2011, became Minister of State. Uh, you left NTUC, uh, you had risen to Deputy Secretary after a 33-year career in the unions. And then, of course, two years later, you became the first woman uh, Speaker of Parliament, and then you reached the pinnacle, uh, Singapore's first woman president in 2017. I summarize all this because I just want to say that that's a tremendous record of quiet uh, but very effective trailblazing. So congratulations. Yeah. So let me get to my first question. And you, you, 
touched on it in your speech. Actually, as president, you made the challenge of what, if I can use the word, multicultural cohesion. Multiracialism, really, but it's beyond just, just race. Uh, a special focus of yours. In 2019, you personally hosted here in Singapore an international conference on cohesive societies. That was an initiative of yours. And I remember you delivered a very inspiring, I would say, landmark speech on, on the subject. Uh, for those who missed it, this is 2019, I commend that speech to you. Uh, and then the second conference in the series was held last year, and you hosted that too. So here's my question. Leaving aside the issue of uh, migrants, can you give us your assessment of the state of multicultural cohesion uh, in Singapore today? And what should we do, or what should we continue to keep an eye on? You've touched on this as well, but if you could elaborate. So that threats to our cohesion can be anticipated and addressed ahead of time. Well, first of all, thank you, Patrick, for all the nice words that you've said to me. I didn't know you were in my room for so long. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, your question is a very relevant and important one. <clears throat> I see a number of uh, concerns that we should have with regards to threats to our cohesion. You're quite right. Social cohesion is actually a very broad concept. It covers so many different areas. It's not just race, religion. It's also, it also covers issues of equality, inequality, income disparity, and so on. But in a number of issues, I think you asked what are the potential threats. One of it, in my view, is the extent to which we see misinformation and disinformation, which is very widespread in the social media. And so you can imagine that if such disinformation, misinformation continues, and then, you know, this is not filtered, which is something we need to make people, impress upon people the ability to be able to discern and find out what are the sources before you believe anything that goes on into social media. For example, you look at Brexit and what happened then, you know, the great threat. Uh, the trouble with this information is that it feeds into people's sense of insecurity, fear, disadvantage, and therefore it then expands that, and then, you know, that can cause a lot of issues with regards to cohesion. Uh, in Brexit, of course, the fear that, you know, the whole influx of people coming in, foreigners, and taking your jobs and your homes and so on and so forth, which, uh, you know, was something that was expanded, was used as a way of justifying certain position, political position. The second thing we've got to be careful about is identity politics. I think everyone knows that quite well. It became worse, I think, during COVID because people withdraw into their own enclaves. Whenever people feel insecure, threatened, whether because of lack of resources, lack of means, or because they feel that their advantages is being eroded, that's where they withdraw into identity politics. And that is something we see around the world, you know not just uh, 
in certain places, but globally, there's a threat, threats of polarization, where people are not really understanding each other, not accommodating each other, and we cannot uh, think that we are immune because we are not immune. We do have our own fault lines, started from the day we became a nation, 1965. We've done a lot to try and address, to, to make sure that people engage and support and talk to each other and accommodate each other. We've done a lot of that. We've also strengthened our national identity because that's important. People have something, values uh, stipulated under the national identity which they can identify with rather than their own subgroups or groups, you know, alone. So we've got to be mindful of that as well. And the, as someone says, insanity, insanity, if it is, uh, pertains to individuals, it is something that is quite rare, but it is the rule when it comes to groups. Someone said that, you know, someone quite famous, I can't remember his name, but that, kind, that quote stuck in my mind. So that's the second thing we ought to be very careful about. The third thing is what can affect cohesion is also the sense of this growing gap, inequality, feeling that maybe perhaps, you know, we not everyone is actually benefiting completely from Singapore's progress or growth opportunities. We need to look out for that. And I think there's so many measures government has in place in trying to help people upgrade, whether you look at the schemes, the various schemes that are available to provide access to education <coughs> to children from, <coughs> excuse me, disadvantaged families, uh, to the workplace, and there are lots of skills upgrading programs to help workers upgrade. But we need to watch that space because that can affect cohesion. Sometimes it's also a sense of perception, you know, I look at people around me and I seem to think that they're doing better than me, whether that is so or not, but it's also a great deal to do with perception. So I think these are some of the issues we need to look out for. And I don't think government is not aware of all these issues. It is, and there's so many efforts. And it has also been fed into some of the Forward Singapore discussions and conversations that we have. But uh, we got to ask ourselves as individuals, what can we do? What more can we do to support this effort at building a national identity of uh, ensuring greater cohesion <coughs> among the different <coughs> communities and to address some of the issues that I mentioned? Of course, the, 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 the big challenge, of course, is it, the Singapore model uh, is, a, is, a, is a difficult one because we want a national identity, yet we want people to be comfortable in their own cultures. We're not kind of throwing them into a melting pot and then come up with a Singaporean. Um, is that, in your view, the big challenge? Well, developing national identity is a challenge in any country, regardless of the model, whether you're the American model, where there's a melting pot model, but you know it's really not uh, that effective as well as compared to ours, where we could keep our own different uh, cultural practices and so on. I think it's still possible because we have a lot of common values. For one thing, this is a nation that we love, we want to serve, that we are loyal to. That's a starting point. From, from there, what are the values that we want to, we want to promote? 
uh, kindness, uh, caring for each other, supporting each other, living in harmony, acknowledging other people's differences, and to see how we could then develop that into strength to accommodate our own space, you see. So I think it's still possible, it's not entirely not possible. But then uh, thrown into this whole conversation is also, also of course that Singapore is not just multiracial, but we've got so many different other communities as well, also coming in, you know, hmm. yeah. Thank you, for, thank you for that answer. Um, let me ask one further question, second question before we, we take some questions from the floor. We don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, you've championed a great many um, number of causes and concerns during your, your, your term. Can you tell us which are you most passionate about and, uh, and how have they shaped your presidency? Well, I do champion a fair number of causes and frankly, I'm quite passionate about all of them. But let me just identify two. One is uh, mental health and the other one is people with disabilities. And uh, mental health, as you know, is something that is very difficult. It's a lot more challenging than other forms of illnesses. You look at a person and you say, well, this person looks perfectly okay. Why is this person be behaving in this manner? Because it's all residing in the brain. People forget that the brain is actually a part of the human body. So if you talk about kidney failure or heart failure or whatever, people can easily understand, but not mental health. So part of the efforts that I made, especially during the six years, but I've been championing it even before the six years for quite a long time, is to also raise awareness and understanding and trying to reduce the stigma. We have, I have a platform called the President's Challenge. And through that President's Challenge, uh, the, the program that I'm most happy about is the one that we launched quite recently where the President's Challenge worked with IMF, IMH. IMH, where we then train the IMH train uh, counselors in four social service agencies to run a program called the PCIMH uh, program wellness for young people. And the idea is basically this. Our young people facing a lot of stress and pressures in society sometimes it's because of family, because of school, because of bullying. Uh, they may need help at the IMH. So they go and seek treatment, they get uh, uh, counseling and so on, but then it's not something that they can do regularly because there are scheduled opportunities times. But then when they go back, they are still facing the same problems in the family, in the school, in the social media. So they need someone to guide them, to support them. This is where then IMH has done an excellent job in terms of training the counsellors. So these young people referred to the social service agencies, the four agencies, will then get counsellors to talk to them. Uh, not only talk to them, talk to the uh, parents as well to, to try and identify what are some of the major concerns, what is causing these problems. And so that has been very helpful. So I think we need to go beyond just talking. We have to actually ensure that we have effective programmes and for me, young people has got a special place because they, are, they have a long runway to face life, you know. And so they must not be handicapped right from the beginning when they are starting. The other group that I am very, very close to my heart are people with disabilities. And I've been working over the last six years. One of the programs that we launched is the Enabling Employment Pledge, 
where there's now about 280 employers that have pledged various things. One of the things is that they will recruit people with disabilities, they will help them to get training, working with SG Enable, and then they will look into how to redesign their workplaces to make it possible for people with disabilities to continue to work. And so I think uh, these are the two initiatives. These are two of the uh, causes that are close to my heart, and I think these are important, that we as a society must take a look at and be prepared to deal with it. Thank you. Um, uh, let me see whether there are any questions from, from, from the floor. There's one hand up there. Hi, Madam President. I'm Andrew. I work for a public policy advisory firm, Global Council. Madam President, you have regularly hosted and engaged a wide range of workers at all levels. Are there some fresh or emerging concerns you want us to be careful to track for the sake of the livelihoods of Singaporeans and for the economic competitiveness of our country? Well, I, uh, there are many issues I'm concerned about, but I should just identify perhaps three. First is what is now a very current issue. People talk about it all the time, but I'm not quite sure there's a lot of thought being given to it, and that is AI. And then the question is, how does it impact jobs? It will impact jobs, but to what extent and in what way we really you know, have not been able to grasp that yet. I mean, I see, I read a lot of literature on this, and some people say it's like this, it's like that. But the fact is that the earlier stages of technology has affected uh, manual workers, because that displays manual labor and automation mechanization comes in, you know. But this AI will, in many people's views, displays affect the white collar workers. I was listening to a BBC program, and two copywriters were interviewed. One was a freelancer, the other one worked for a company, and both said the same thing. They were displaced because AI, the chat GPT, one AI platform has come in, and their companies, in the case of the freelancer, uh, a lot of his, uh, the, the people giving him work on a freelance basis no longer wants to give him because they said they can just get a chat GPT to do it for them. But uh, although they said that it's not 100% as good, but if it's 70, 80%, it's still much cheaper than them. So one chap says, well, now I'm going to learn how to do plumbing. Kitchens will all get stuck. So, you know, and, uh, you know, the sinks will all get stuck and then the toilets will also have problems. So I'll go and get a certificate to do that. Another one said that now I'm going to be a dog walker, you know. I think perhaps that this is just one example, and then there were a lot of uh, comments that perhaps even the legal, the lawyers will be affected, doctors will be affected, but the extent to which we really have to try and uh, we need to think very carefully about and see how that affects our workforce, you know, in terms of what we need to do to upskill, reskill them or whatever, prepare them for the changes. AI is not all bad because look at our population is aging very rapidly. Our only hope is, uh, you know, we cannot have more and more people going to the labor force, but we can have, uh, but we still, we need to increase productivity and perhaps AI is one way of ensuring that our productivity goes up. 
And so the jury is really out there, I mean, but we have to be prepared. My second point is the platform workers. I'm concerned about it. There's already a tripartite committee set up to look into this, you know. But you see, what has happened with platform work is this. The risk has, trans has been transferred from employers to workers. The risk of downtime, the risk of, uh, you know, breakdowns. You know, if you have a platform worker who rides a, bike, a, a, a motorcycle, it breaks down. It's no longer the employer's, the, the, the businessman's time. The company's uh, cost is the cost of the platform worker because his motorcycle cannot run. He has to go and get it fixed. He cannot do his deliveries or other work. And so, or he cannot drive if he's a driver doing plat on a platform uh, with a platform company. So the risk in the company, in the labor market, has been fully transferred to the worker. And so we need to understand where is the balance that we as a society would like to see this whole discussion about how do we rebalance it when we talk about rules or policies that we want to adopt for platform workers. I mean, some countries have done it already. They said if platform worker is employed by a particular company for a number of years, it's to be deemed that a worker is a full-time worker, have access to Social security benefits in our case is of course the CPF. And we know that's a very fundamental CPF pays for health, it pays for housing, you know. And uh, also people can't work 365 days because they must have downtime, they fall sick. And so now if you're not a full-time employee, that downtime is on you because you don't earn an income, you know. So I'm concerned about that and I hope that there will be a consensus, you know, of course, employer's argument will be that it's absolute flexibility that's necessary. That is so, but there's also the need to balance it against protection for people who earn a living and for whom, you know, and society needs to understand that because it affects them. My third concern is, of course, low-wage workers. There's a lot of efforts trying to improve the welfare of low-wage workers. We have the... the uh, progressive wage model and so on. But we need to, that, to do that a lot faster because otherwise the cost of living will overcome them. You know, so all this of course is done through tripartite means, but so I hope that tripartism will really be able to ensure that people are able to earn a decent living, have decent jobs, you know. So those are some of my concerns here. Yeah. And of course overall, I must say, since I was a trade unionist for three, 33 years, I am concerned that a lot of younger Singaporeans don't really understand what trade unionism is all about. They don't even understand what is industrial relations, what is the value of good labor management relations. So I hope the IPS will do something to help to disseminate and make them better understand. Very generous, your work is cut out for you. <laughs> because, can you imagine? We've thought about, we've spoken about tripartism for the longest time. And tripartism depends on all three parties being strong. If one party is, you know, not able because people, I mean, people don't understand, appreciate their role, I think that will affect tripartism. It will affect also, at some point, it will affect our labor management cooperation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Maybe I can take one more question. There's, there's someone up there. Over there? Yeah. Um, Sorry, just tell us your name and where you're from. Sure. Um, Natalie Pang from NUS. Um, from IPS. 
NUS. NUS, sorry. Okay. I know it sounds similar. <laughs> um, Madam President, you have also consistently championed wrong the, mic, um, the issue of women's development amongst other issues. What are your thoughts on women balancing work and family responsibilities? And how can we better retain women in the workforce? Thank you. You can talk for as long as you want. <laughs> People want to go home, they're tired, I think. <laughs> so, well, there are two issues here. One is the heavy caregiving responsibilities of women. And second, women moving into leadership positions. Caregiving responsibilities, I think that's very well known. There's a lot of studies, there's a lot of research done. Caregiving responsibilities is still has fallen still very much upon women. And so how to balance their caregiving responsibilities, not just children, young children, but now because our society is aging because they have elderly parents. Some cases they have elderly, elderly grandparents also, multi-generational families to take care of. And that's a very serious problem. And so, and if we ask, uh, sometimes what happens is, in order to juggle all these different caregiving responsibilities, women uh, stay at home, take care of them, before they, they have to leave their jobs. That creates issues of its own because upon retirement or when their caregiving responsibilities are finally over, they don't have the income to take care of themselves. They don't have the retirement income. And that retirement income is necessary to take care of them and also for their what are, whatever other needs such as medical and so on. So it's important, they don't have that. So it's still very much a, a, a challenge there's a lot of, and of course, women suffer from caregiver burnout. I meet many of them. They take care of uh, 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 husbands also, sometimes who are not well. Caregiver burnout is a very serious issue. Of course, there are a lot of initiatives now. Government has also come in, put in some support measures and so on. When it comes to children, government has done a very good job because you see the development of childcare centers, upgrading of the quality of teachers, curriculum and all that, giving women the confidence to be able to put their children in the childcare centre because if it's of a certain quality and not just for the purpose of feeding them, bathing them, but also making sure they have a, a developmental environment, that's pretty good. I think what we are, uh, however, with when it comes to elder care, uh, we, are, we are, you know, still a lot of scope to grow and you know that's something that we need to look at and we need to plan a lot more holistically uh, not just for the elderly now the aging that are coming a lot of things are being done i must say when you go around singapore you see a lot of elderly people exercising you know <laughs> and that's a good thing there's a lot of elder care centers and so on you know senior care centers and so on but we, we need to pay a lot of attention to that because that is the, uh, the, uh, the, the women carry a lot of that caregiving responsibility. The second part is leadership. A lot of women have entered into the workforce, uh, joined companies. But if you look, um, and I would say that this is not peculiar to Singapore. All over the world is the same problem. Women goes into management ranks but never reach the top, you know, somehow they get uh, there is a glass ceiling somewhere there they don't get over into the top and what are the reasons i suppose 
you really got to, you know, have a very thorough insight into that. What are the reasons? There could be numerous. Some people say, well, you know, women have got caregiving responsibilities. Then we go back to the problem number one, you know. So, but I think there are more, uh, there are a lot more systemic structural issues at work as well. For example, sometimes it does not come automatically to people's mind that if we need to promote someone right to the top, can we consider perhaps a woman candidate who's suitable, who's got experience, the capabilities, the capacity, perhaps that never crossed the mind. I don't know. I never sit on board, so... But I think that a lot of very capable women, you look around you, whether in the professions, in the managerial positions and so on. So, leadership. Of course, political leadership, I've said it openly. The Pew Research did say that when it comes to diplomacy and politics, uh, women have a much shorter career <clears throat> compared to male politicians, especially at the level of head of state or head of government. Uh, whether that applies to also when it, 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 something that's general applies to women in other leadership positions, perhaps I don't know. But I think it's not just a question of then there not being enough capable, competent women, but somehow it's you don't have that, aha, I want to promote somebody. There is a woman in the company that's doing very well, so perhaps we could give her a chance. Make her a deputy, for instance, you know, or something like that, yeah. So I think leadership at senior levels is still quite a challenge for women in Singapore. And uh, those, I think, are some of the key issues that women face. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam President. I actually busted my time limit already, but I must end... Sorry, I can't take any more questions, yeah? Uh, there's some cake cutting to be done. <laughs> uh, but just, just a, a quick one. Uh, what are your plans going forward? Uh, what, are, what are the causes <laughs> you're going to champion? Short answer will do. Short answer, okay, yeah. I'm retiring. <laughs> well, just a very short answer, that question, yeah. Uh, yeah. You have... A long runway ahead of you. I know I followed you. I know you will be doing many things. So I'm trying to find out what, what, what will you Well, do? I think uh, some of the things I've been championing, some of the causes, I don't think it's so easy for me to just let go and say so I cut it off completely. No, this will be some of the things that I will continue to do in different capacities. If I can lend my voice, I will do that. Most certainly, in whichever way I can contribute, I will do so because I think everyone has a role to play in our society. Is that short enough? I'll, I'll get the answer out of you at some point. Anyway, thank you very much, Madam President. Ladies and gentlemen, the President who will be stepping down sometime soon. Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Madam President and Mr. Daniel for the engaging dialogue. Madam President had spoken extensively about the three shared values of multiracialism, meritocracy, and stewardship. The dialogue also expounded on these aspects and addressed questions surrounding the causes which Madam President is most concerned about. Like any birthday party, we have now come to the birthday song and cake cutting. May I please invite Emeritus Senior Minister and IPS founding patron, Mr. Go Chok Tong, to join Madam President on stage for this segment. With them will be Mr. Janadas Devon and former IPS directors, 
Professor Chan Heng Chi, Ambassador Tommy Koh, Dr. Lee Saoyuan, and Mr. Arun Mahisnan. Let us all rise to sing Happy Birthday to IPS. Happy Birthday to Could I now invite Madam President, ESM Go and Director to cut the cake. Very happy 35th birthday to IPS. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing and have your glasses ready as Ambassador Tommy Koh leads us in a toast. Over to you, Ambassador Koh. Um, I'm going to abuse my privilege and confess that I'm also a member of the Halima Yaakob fan club. Uh, and may I request that in your retirement years, please write your memoir because it will be a source of inspiration for so many young people. Yeah. And don't forget the causes you used to champion when you were a trade unionist, one of which was the rights of foreign domestic workers. Um, I, I want to say another thing, which is that there will be no IPS without Go Chok Tong. So will you join me in giving... ESM go a round of applause. Yeah. And now finally, please join me in wishing IPS many more good years ahead. May IPS continue to grow in strength, in knowledge and in wisdom. Happy birthday, IPS. Thank you, Madam President, ESM Go, and our directors. Please join me in thanking Madam President for gracing tonight's dinner. Madam President will now be taking her leave.